Yo, Mike. What it is, Hello and welcome to the first episode of the weekly podcast featuring me, Kylie McDaniel, and he, Eric Longenhagen. Eric, say hello. Hello. I did not Good say job. the title of this podcast because we don't have one. Here, we'll we'll let you guys make some suggestions. I'll, I'll tell you what we're going to do here, and then you guys can tell us, you know, maybe what you'd want to call it. Uh, we're going to go weekly. We're going to talk about, obviously, prospect stuff, as you would guess. And we'll also cover big league topics. I guess, uh, like, more broadly, we're looking at, like, sort of an insider's view of player evaluation, scouting, whether it be advanced, amateur pro, player development, kind of every element of what a front office would be talking about. And we'll do three topics each week. We'll do at least one that's focused on the big leagues. Throw in some timestamps, so if you're more interested in one than another, you can jump in and out. So my my previous podcast I had way back in the day was called Marginal Prospects, which, you know, We'll throw that that one into the hat. You guys can tell us what you think. My, my jokier one was uh, Rod Save America, which is a picture of Rod Beck throwing a, a baseball, but the baseball is America. And then he's got like a, you know, prodigious mustache like he does. Um, Did. Yeah, sorry. Well, yeah, I, I would I would suppose he doesn't still have Rest it. Rest in peace. RIP Rod Beck. Uh, and then I, I don't think we're going to do guests a ton, you know, projecting here out into the future. Uh, but only if it's, you know, necessary to illuminate us on a uh, certain topic. So, you know, if you guys have any uh, anything to throw us as far as suggestions, things you like, you didn't like, uh, I'm on Twitter at Kylie McD. Eric, what are you on Twitter? Just at Longenhagen. And then uh, I believe the email is what? Uh, prospects at Fangraphs.com? Yeah, Prospects at fan- Fangraphs.com is where that's just sort of like it funnels into both of our email accounts. So you can send. Just try not to overdo it. And that, that can be about anything, but... Yeah, we, we'd like to know what you people want. I'd like to think... Board stuff. Some, yeah, I'd like to think that we know what you people want, but it's going to be a combination of both. Um, all right, well, I've done enough talking. Eric, why don't you uh, tell oh. the people, I guess, last week or so, like, games you've been to, stuff you've been working on, things, <laughs> topics that are lighting you up. If you're at a cocktail party, great, what are you talking about? It's a great time to ask this question. This past week was, uh, I took a week off and did nothing. There you go. I'm going to throw a reggaeton horn on that. Okay. Really? All right. Um, whatever. You're doing the editing work, so like you have, it's your director's cut. I just, yeah, I just kind of hung out at home. We got a new cat. One of Jill's students had a litter of kittens, and we have, we took one of them. He's been sick already, so that's been a lot of fun. And like, yeah, that's sort of it. What about? Because uh, we don't have. This is the time between AZL and Instructional League, where it's just like, unless you, I want to kick out, and do be it like, yourself? yeah, I don't, yeah. <laughs> So, like, it's Pioneer League playoffs. If I really want to head up there, um, I could do that. And then it was just a week of nonsense, really, just, like, reading and eating a lot and not really doing anything productive in any way. So it was pretty good. Why are you trying to show us all up? (laughs) Come on, dude. It's necessary. So, like, in my opinion, the more that you do it, the better you are at the writing thing. And so, like... I don't do a good enough job forcing myself to do it, but this past week I tried to, and I did okay. I've gotten to the point now where I try to uh, turn in clean copy just so Carson doesn't yell at me. That's good. Because, like, the pride on my part, like, it'll when it finds its way to the site, it'll be fine. So it's like there's not a ton of pride on my part. But, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't want him to slack me, all the stuff I messed up. And, and Did you do anything last week? Did you see any ball? Yeah, saw some ball. Actually, uh, I guess some of the ball I saw is another one of our topics this week. Um, I had sort of the end of the minor league season on my end as well, so there were a handful of guys I either hadn't seen that had just been promoted to the Florida State League or uh, guys I saw early that I wanted to see again. 
So I got out and saw a bunch of those. Um, basically, I think every team in the league, <laughs> minus one or two. Um, cool. So, yeah, I got a lot of guys there and wrote an article that, as I said, we'll refer to uh, in a bit um, about the pitching prospects I saw and how it got me to thinking about certain kinds of guys are over undervalued. And obviously now at the end of the season, we're starting to get into list making season. So there's a lot of uh, thoughts about big picture stuff about like, how do we want the list to look like, you know, what the actual rankings are. And then like also visually, how do we want to present it? Um, Cause we're basically about to go through every player in organized baseball. So if we're going to, if we're going to make a change, we've got to decide now. You don't want to do it halfway through. But that, I guess those will be some off-air discussions, trying to figure out exactly how to do that. Eh, I sort of think that sort of stuff's going to bleed into this space, too. Since this is, I mean, part of the reason that we started doing this, too, was just because there were many conversations that Kylie and I have had where it's like, you know, like 15 minutes of this clipped and put online would probably have been nice and, like, informative in some way. And, and so we're trying to hope that happens on here. Also, we're doing the the 2018 thing that is just monetizing everything that you uh, like and like are competent at, like driving <laughs> or having a home that has an extra room. Wait, so would you describe podcasts as Uber for audio? There you go. So, yeah, I'm sorry. So here, I'll, I'll give all three topics so so people can figure out what they want oh. to do. So the first one, we're going to do September call-ups for contenders uh, and I guess how they're going to affect the race, which we basically just left out the AL since the race is basically over for those five spots already. Uh, second topic is, uh, I guess, taking uh, a dive off of uh, the article I wrote this week uh, about Matt Manning, Dylan Cease, Brennan McKay, and over and undervaluing certain types of prospects and all that kind of stuff. Talking about some of those archetypes and where our heads are at. And then the last topic is what Eric was referring to. Uh, just talking about the 2019 draft. Now that the summer showcase season is over, we're, um, there's a couple sort of fall events, like a handful, like I guess three or four of them. I'll, pro- I'll probably go to a few of them. But basically between now and like February, there's not going to be very much movement in the draft stuff. So, you know, a little bit of a preview of 2019 and maybe a little bit of discussion of um, some future classes if, you know, they seem especially good. Um, and then How again, much- we'll, we'll, we'll do plugs for all oh. the comedy uh, shows that we'll be doing this week. Uh, I'm going to be in Toledo, actually. Just a little bit of a teaser. <laughs> all right. Topic no. one, Eric. September call-ups for contenders. Uh, yeah. You know, little little look behind the curtain here. This one's kind of your idea, and you compiled this list. So I'll let you sort of drive the bus here, and I'll, you know sort of jump in and uh, give some thoughts as you go. Oh, okay. Uh, so, yeah, so the goal was to come up with everybody that uh, might have an impact on the playoff race in September and uh, specifically, like, how they might be used. Because some of these guys, and they're not all just prospects. It's Some, some of these guys are, like, 4A types uh, or guys whose prospect eligibility has lapsed who we just want to talk about for the sake of talking about the impact that they might have on like an actual baseball field, which is still important. And so uh, I guess like the race that is most interesting to me is the NL West race because it's so tight between Colorado, Los Angeles and Arizona because I'm like here. So the, uh, the thing that interests me about Arizona who is brought up the only 40 man addition that they made was Yoan Lopez. And so like, there's a lot to unpack with that whole situation. Uh, the Yoan Lopez. That might be its own podcast. It might be, yeah. Um, but like in short, it's mid nineties uh, fastball with a power slider, uh, and then Jimmy Scherfee is going to help the bullpen as well. And, and there's like up the middle depth that Arizona sorely needs. Their catching situation in the big leagues is really terrible. Uh, it's been J.R. Murphy, Alex Avila, Jeff Mathis, uh, and so they brought Chris Stewart up as well. Um, 
yeah, so I, that's a hole for them all month long. They really just would have to mix and match, try to piece that together. Uh, and then it's up the middle guys like Ildemaro Vargas, a Sestouli favorite. Uh, Chris Owings, who's going to give them just defensive flexibility really more than anything else. Socrates Brito, who finally gets to graduate off of prospect lists after being like a handful of plate appearances away from doing it. My, my prospect then, history with him goes so far back. I saw him months before he even signed a pro contract. That's how far back I go with Socrates. So, yeah, he's he's literally been like two or three plate appearances from graduating for something like two calendar years. But I think the most interesting guy on this list is Matt Cook. In the event that something happens to any of these Diamondback starters, and like this is, this is the team with the most fragile starting pitching entering September. Uh, it's just like Buckholtz. Robbie Ray, Patrick Corbin, like the depth has been destroyed by injuries. Uh, so, like if someone goes down for any extended period of time, this it's Matt Cook is the guy who's going to have to carry the load unless they bring up like John Duplantier or Taylor Widener or someone like that. Yeah, he's like um, he's the sixth. Uh, Cook's the sixth starter now. I guess took the Shelby Miller role from preseason, basically. Right. Yeah, and if like they need a spot start, then this is just what September bullpens are for. Uh, is you know you just have a bullpen day, and that's it. Um, but like if someone gets hurt for an extended period of time, then I think that they would. I think there's reason to look toward guys who are not on this list, like Duplantier and Widener, uh, and I suppose Taylor Clark uh, to like fill in because I just think those guys have much better stuff than Cook, who hasn't pitched well at AAA. How how often do you think, or in in your experience? Do uh, playoff teams look to a Duplantier, Clark, Widener type that, as far as I know, none of them have had any big league appearances yet this year? That that seems yeah. like scraping the bottom of the barrel a bit, just as far as big league caliber guys that don't have any experience. Uh, the last time I can remember it happened, I can't remember it happening with the pitcher, um, but uh, Raul Mondesi, like. Little Raul Adalberto Mondesi is the last guy I can remember coming up and like making his MLB debut in a situation that no one expected he would be forced to. Um, I don't know what was the whole Ankiel situation when like fifteen years ago. Really, like, yeah, K Rod came up and just like mowed through the league was incredible, in and then he was in the playoffs. Yeah, but I don't. Yeah, I think so, he got that role because he was so good. It wasn't like they had to throw him in the eighth inning. Right, he was dominant down the stretch. It wasn't a situation like their hand wasn't forced. Yeah, like, and Arizona is also in an unusual uh, competitive environment where they have, um, you know, Goldschmidt's contract is up what after next year. Uh, yeah, he's Pollock got one more year. year. I think it's an option. It's pretty reasonable. It's like fourteen and a half million or something like that. Yeah, so after next year they, they lose Goldschmidt. After this year they lose Pollock. Grinky's got tons of guaranteed money. They lose Corbin this year, and they're not an enormous payroll team. So they'd really be pushing themselves to bring all these guys back. And do they then? sort of not push the reset button, but sort of do like a power rebuild, like say the Brewers did where you kind of let some expensive guys move and then let some younger guys slide in and try not to be that bad while you're doing it. Or do they, you know, try to do like Kansas city and try to extend this thing as long as they can. I think that it, the situation's more fluid. I think it'll, I think the guys that they have coming up, I think Duplantier and Widener and uh, like there's the pitching side, especially losing Corbin. And I think Robbie Ray is up soon too. Um, Taiwan Walker has a, has a TJ now. Like, um, I, I expect pitching to be solved internally. It wouldn't surprise me if uh, this became a situation similar to the Cubs, like on the, the on the amateur side. Eventually, like where they stream 
college pitching in mid rounds, like just a high volume of it that uh, they yield something. Well, the Cubs really haven't yet. Just, um, yeah, just to try to uh, replenish the, the big leagues as quickly as you can. Right. Yeah, yeah once the position Kansas players City are in place. That. We've seen some inclination for Arizona to sort of lock in some of these position players, right? Like Ketel Marte seems locked in now at either short or second base for the foreseeable future. Jake Lamb's not healthy, although I would suppose he's a candidate for that eventually. I understand what you're saying, and I agree that they'll tend to to lean toward what we're saying is that like Peyton Smith does something and Dalton Varshaw comes up and does something like this is where they're going to try to solve most of what they can internally. Well, yeah, I guess it um, seems like they're in that general area that like uh, Tampa Bay and Oakland and Pittsburgh are in where maybe not that small of a market, but that they maybe scoot back from that 88 possible win team to more of an 80. And then on a year by year basis, they're deciding, do we want to shade toward 78 and reload it, Or do we want to shade toward 83 and see if we can get lucky and get in the race? which it seems where most of the more progressive teams are sort of approaching things going forward when they're not a huge market. I think their farm system is pretty exciting. So uh, I think they'll be able to solve most of the uh, holes that are about to, I don't know, burst open with guys from inside the system already. Well, we went pretty long on that first one. Uh, the, sure. <laughs> but but also, the, I think they are the most interesting uh, sort of yeah. for this context anyway. And I would also say that my initial question with them, which was, how many contending teams are bringing up a bunch of guys for their first starts in the middle of a playoff run? Uh, I guess the Braves would be one because <laughs> they've been doing yeah, that for so, like the last two months. Right. Yeah. This is it's pretty interesting, right? Because we've got two, and I suppose part of this is because the Braves are contending. But like Atlanta has not been shy about promoting Colby Allard and uh, Bryce Wilson and Mike Soroka, like and Tuki. They've just streamed these guys when they think they're ready, uh, and it's just. Interesting that it's juxtaposed against what is happening and being talked about with the White Sox and Eloy Jimenez and Vlad Jr. with Toronto. Like a lot yeah, of the discussion have, is you also have Freed, Gohara, Minter, and Kyle Wright that all kind of fit that definition too. Right? Yeah, they've all come up and at some point or another. Yeah, and like so, most of these guys who we just rattle off are were brought up for September. Two keys pitching as we speak against the D backs uh, here in Arizona, and Kyle Wright is up in a relief role. Bryce Wilson is up in a relief role. Uh, Max Freed is up in what I assume will be a relief role. Uh, and I think will probably be one long term. Um, and then the group of outfielders, they acquired Preston Tucker from Cincinnati. They got him back. And then, uh, I mean, some of these guys we just talked about are near the top of our, of the board, um, like Kyle Wright. But the most interesting guy I think is Michael Reed, like former Brewers, prospect michael reed who made his big league debut in 2015 is one of these like stocky really strong corner outfield types who hit for huge like his numbers in the low minors are crazy it was like uh, um his peripherals were very strong it's like a career 15 percent walk rate guy in the minors yeah i scouted him in 2014 uh, and, and thought he was like a really good fourth outfielder to low end everyday guy right so it was like he was putting up like upper 300 OBPs and stealing 20 bases a year and, uh, you know, I don't know, like 35, 40 extra base hits a year. But it was, he's a, he was a flat-planed swing guy who uh, like was grounding out a lot. And as he reached the upper level, some of, what, some of his issues were obscured by the like, AAA hitting environments that he was playing in. And so he's, he's never really he's done anything tweeter. with the big leagues. Right. But uh, – there might be a, this might be a swing change guy, so he's his ground ball rate is down to thirty six percent, which is compared to like fifty percent 
last year, and like his career average is, is in the mid forties, close to fifty, like annually. Um, so I went and like did some video work on Michael Reed, and I don't see anything all that notable as far as like a swing change that has been made that might be the cause of this. And so I'm just curious if you think that flat plane swing guys like Michael Reed are now well positioned in the pitcher versus hitter metagame <laughs> that has that's has pitchers working up in the zone more. And is this also why Nick Markakis had the season he had? So this is like <laughs> I, yeah, I don't uh, know what to tell you. These this are is my theory. Questions. This feels like a topic. Although I'd like to have an answer if I'm going to make this into a topic. Because <laughs> I don't I have mean, an answer. This, this, this seems like you'd have right. to interview five players to find out. Uh, so yeah, this is just a flat plane swing guy who I think is positioned now where pitchers are pitchers are more apt to work up with fastballs now. And three years ago, Michael, Michael Reed was not suited for that sort of pitcher-hitter environment, and now suddenly he is. Um, and I just happen to believe that this is why Nick Markakis had the resurgent year that he did, because he's also a flat plane swing guy. And in a um, world where 34-year-old Nick Markakis goes from, well, can we get somebody to eat some of this money, to, oh my god, this guy's pretty good, we need we need him for our playoff run, I suppose anything's possible. It's also hilarious to look at Michael Reed's Fangraphs page and see that when he debuted in 2015, the average fastball below was 92, and now he's facing 94.6 on average. <laughs> like, it's just been three years. <laughs> so yeah, like, I don't know, do you, do you think, what do you think about moving Wilson to the bullpen for September? Do you think there's do you think that's fine like i don't know other than it seems pretty clear what roles all these guys are going to play like reed and tucker are right and left outfield bench bats lane adams is going to pinch run and there's just a bunch of pitching depth here yeah sabatka hitting 100 out of the bullpen but you're not positive he's going to throw a ton of strikes so it'll be more mop-up time yeah, I I had said uh, coming into the season that I thought Wilson's best role, I mean, now that it exists, is that, that Ray's second to fifth inning guy, where his off-speed is not consistently above average with both the slider and changeup enough to where you want him turning over a lineup three times. But I think he's about as good as you're going to get as far as uh, different sorts of fastballs with above average command, and he can hit you with one of those off-speed pitches in the right part of the zone. And he can, he can face everybody in the league twice and do fine. Uh, and he's also got sort of the bulldog mentality. I think he throws a little bit harder in short stints. Um, so, yeah, I think he is uniquely suited to either be the sort of um, short leash starter or longer leash, like multi-inning, you know, fireman in the playoffs or, you know, all kinds of different stuff. Anything from, you know, two to four innings, I suppose. Uh, and you could argue Tuki Tucson is too because he's sort of dialed things down now where it's more of like a sinker, change-up, lower-octane curveball where he can you know go six innings and succeed. But if you tell him to bring in the high-octane stuff for one inning, like that's about as good of stuff as you're going to see now that he just like magically has uh, a 60 change-up every now and then to go with the 70 curveball and the mid-90s stuff that he kind of always had. Um, but now he has sort of two different looks where I guess Bryce Wilson is more of a one-look guy that – you don't want to leave out there quite too long. Um, having all these guys to mix and match, along with the veterans, uh, I think I think puts um, puts the Braves in a good spot to be able to um, figure out something that'll work. Let's clear out some of these who we don't have a whole lot to say about. So, like St. Louis, I really didn't even write anybody's name down. <laughs> like St. Louis just hasn't brought anybody up that's particularly interesting. They have Carson Kelly up now. Um, well, they just traded Tommy Pham presumably to make room for um, O'Neill and Bader. Um, so I guess that's a little bit of their their call up was a little ahead of time. Bader's been playing really well, uh, like really well. He's like already up over three and a half wins. 
I think he's got more uh, war than like Acuna and Soto do. Um, what did you think of Bader in college? He, it was funny. I he never had a huge profile, and I didn't quite understand why. Because he'll give you fifty-five, sixty run times, uh, arm where he can play some right field. Um, above average, maybe plus raw power, depending on the day. And it was like a little stiff, a little mechanical, but he made enough contact. It was never like a huge swing and miss guy. Um, and I talked after he kind of got to the big leagues and started working out, I talked to some scouts that saw him even more than I did. And they were like, kind of the same story. Like, yeah, I kind of discounted him. And now looking back, I'm not really sure why. And apparently all the makeup uh, stuff was positive, and I think people just kind of talked themselves out of it because it was a little bit of a tweener and not like a perfect swing and not like a huge high-profile freshman when he came in. Uh, it, it was just kind of flew a little under the radar, which I think also kind of happened with Preston Tucker to a lesser degree uh, coming out of that same yeah. program in Florida. The uh, the most I saw Bader consecutive, consecutively was when he was in Fall League, and I had six run. He's at least a seven runner, um, but he was a six runner for me in the Fall League. Uh, when a lot of guys are kind of ground down, but he's definitely at least a, a seven runner now. And I had 55 pull power, but huge, like just a huge hole in the outer half against sliders. Just was constantly getting beat away by sliders. I just thought it was going to be exploited in the big leagues and that he was going to have a four bat and that it would be like a four bat with like fringe game power. And he was like just fine in center field. He's much better in center field than uh, I thought he would be. And, uh, yeah, he's playing really well. So he basically uh, yeah, got better at everything. I guess. I mean, I... That seems to be the story when these guys come out of nowhere. It's like, oh, what happened? It's like, well, they came out of nowhere because they weren't that good, and now they're really good because everything got better. I just don't think guys get solved as quickly as we might assume, and that that still might be coming, because it's sort of come a little bit for Cody Bellinger this season. You know, I think hitters have a better idea of how to attack him. I think it happened for Ryan Howard. Like, it happens for... Uh, it happens a lot where pitchers figure you out. It just doesn't – it takes, I think, longer even with all this information that we have. Like I just think it takes longer for it to happen than we realize. So it's possible that might happen with, with Bader. Um, but uh, but he's certainly outperformed my expectations at this point. Okay. Chicago Cubs also like no – they didn't really call anybody up. Dylan Maples is up mid-90s, upper 90s, uh, 70 slider, three command. James Norwood, uh, who's a guy I saw when he was in the Atlantic 10 with University of St. Louis. He's the only – went to university. The Billikens, yep. Uh, he's another mid-90s guy. That's sort of all he does. Both those guys are, are pitching depth. Uh, Milwaukee brought up – a lot of teams you'll see bring third catcher. They brought up Jacob Nottingham, who neither Kylie nor I is especially fond of. He sounds Domingo British, Santana, though. Jacob Nottingham. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. So four EPL teams named after Nottingham. Uh, this this is dangerous. So you should stop me if you think this is going to get off get us way off topic. But Jill and I did watch the Kevin Costner Robin Hood yesterday. <laughs> That's going to be topic four. We, we're just going to defer them. I I well uh, I'll say the one thing I had on St. Louis is uh, sorry my my most notable um, association with Harrison Bader is that my two-year-old nephew likes talking about Star Wars and keeps talking about Darth Bader. And, yeah, and my other association with uh, a former Cardinals outfielder was that Stephen Piscotti sounds like my nephew trying to say spaghetti. So those are those are my thoughts on their outfield. See, everyone, Kylie's a person. <laughs> I have thoughts, right? Brandon Woodruff graduated too, but Milwaukee brought him up. 
he's he pitched out of the bullpen for them in his first, I guess, appearance since he was up. He was like 95, 98, so that's fine. He's just fine. Um, and we'll be fine. I think he'll be someone who's in the rotation next year. Would, would you describe him as fine? He's fine. Yeah. He's another just guy fine. That, was, that was like didn't get a lot of reps in college, seemed to maybe be at odds with the coaches. Like, it didn't quite work out. And then he signs and immediately, like, his velo's up, he's healthy, he's throwing strikes. Everyone's like, where did this come from? Like, there's, like, two or three of those in, like, every draft class where everyone's like, well, we knew that guy was good. He just wasn't good. And another elite makeup good. guy, the what? Brewers will tell you. That's just another, like, like Bader. It's just, like, everyone is like, yeah, this guy is super hungry and works really hard. And, yeah, so good for Bader and Woodruff. Colorado. Uh, does Colorado operate in such a bizarre way that you cease to apply logic as a means of explanation it's like, to what they're doing? It's like in the Homer at the Bad episodes of The Simpsons where everyone just like disappears for increasingly ridiculous reasons. I feel like Colorado is like one of those areas where like any 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 sort of like um, big picture logic of like what they're trying to do or what the strategy is, or here's a guy there, they're, you know, this, the, the whole, I mean, would they spend like $50 million on relievers this year when their team wasn't particularly close? It just, it never quite adds up, but it's always like generally positive, but it's never quite what you think it should be. The Ian Desmond stuff this year is what really like just has thrown me for a loop. And I also, I mean, I personally prefer – so, like, the reason I ask this is because Raymel Tapia is up. He's not prospect eligible anymore, but he had another great year at AAA. It took me a while to buy into Raymel Tapia. This Did you is have a to guy. down to his level to understand his point? <laughs> okay, yeah. So th- this is why, uh, while it partially – because for those that don't know, Raymel Tapia has a really terrific natural bat-to-ball skills. It's really the most important part of his entire skill set. Uh, and yet with two strikes, he gets into like an extreme crouch that is much different than his stance is for when he has one or two strikes or one or zero strikes. And someone at the site, and I forget who the author was, uh, but someone at our site did a, a study about changing eye level. If pitchers working in sequence up and down were accidentally also changing the eye level of the umpire such that it uh, was not beneficial for them that they were confusing the umpire's eye level as well and not getting strike calls that they should be because of it. Um, and it showed that, yeah, like pitchers can also mess with the umpire's eye level in a way that does not benefit the pitcher. Uh, and so like it should be in consideration when you are trying to do it to a hitter. Uh, and so like in essence, Tapia voluntarily was doing this to himself uh, with two strikes. And he, I just sort of realized that this it works for this guy – his track record is such that I just buy it. Um, he has this sort of like build and twitch and uh, athletic ability that I think uh, plays well like into your mid to late 20s. I just think he's going to get a lot of opportunities and be a good big leaguer eventually. Um, enough that I like him more than David Dahl, who the Rockies have called upon much more often this year in the event that they needed him up from AAA, uh, more so than Tapia which is an indication to me that Colorado likes Dahl more than Tapia. Well, they got more uh, resources, my, higher upside, more, more traditional profile. I know, but like, so so find me how how the Ian Desmond thing happens then. Like, oh, explain, I have no idea. That find no some sense sort of argument. I can see the Dahl argument, but with stuff like this, I'd like to err on the side of trusting the team 
And so, like, when I'm lining up Colorado's outfielders, which also includes, uh, you know, like, Noel Cuevas is up for September as well. He's sort of interesting. But, like, I'd like to think that this team would line them up. Like, the sign that they have Dahl ahead of Tapia is, uh, you know, what it conflicts with mine. And so I'm trying to – do I have to reevaluate? Like, the team knows a lot about their own players. But, like, I just can't – the Desmond thing I just cannot find an argument for. And so, like, it just makes me not want to – Listen to what Colorado says about their own players, essentially. And the Ryan, Ryan McMahon handling has been a little bizarre, too. Right. And so he's another guy who's up for September, who I just think, who I was, like, was late to buy into, but now just think that he should be playing there every day, and he's just not. Pat Vileka and like a junk-balling lefty Sam Howard who's got like average stuff he's up as well. The Dodgers have a bunch of veterans and Alex Verdugo. So it's like uh, Tim Locastro, who's a plus runner. Uh, French Fry participant. Yeah. Uh, another guy who maybe the swing is ultimately well positioned for the meta game, but uh, the Dodgers have a history of incorporating lift into their guys' swings. Actually, which which really makes Locastro like an interesting late bloomer candidate because he does have contact skills and he runs well and he plays up the middle and stuff. So uh, is keep he an Frank eye on Conolinato, Eric. Is that who he is? I don't know. Do you think so? No, it's just whenever you describe that sort of player, that's the first guy I think of. I mean, eventually the people that are living won't know who that is anymore. The platonic ideal of the up-the-middle contact-oriented guy? Yeah, like, the second, like the second base left field contact guy with a little bit of pop that's like kind okay. of a reserve but might be a starter. Mine is Descalso. Yeah, that's another one. I mean, you've always been a Mike Matheny guy. <laughs> a Joe Harpio guy. <laughs> yeah, you're a huge Joe Harpio guy. you got Tony La Russa's no. haircut. You're, you're just very in the whole Cardinals, best fans in baseball camp. What an honorable man. I think. Oh, and then I guess Philly's our last team. Yeah, Philly's the last team, and this is another one that where it's like the handling of the situation so far has been kind of puzzling. Because he's, he's especially my boy, but Scott Kingery has not been good. Like, he has not been good all year. Uh, he's been playing out of position defensively at short, but he's also swinging through, like, piped 91-mile-an-hour fastballs that he should be crushing. I mean, do you assume um, that's mental? I do, but is that fair? Well, now we're just like making excuses for a guy because he was rated high on a prospect list. And saying, ourselves, yeah. Like, if we had heard of him, we'd say he's bad. <laughs> right, but I feel so confident that he's not. I mean, how much of it, how much of us buying into him was because of Redding? Like, it seemed clear, and there are, I saw it, and uh, corroborated by scouts who saw him last year, he, there, was, there were mechanical changes that were relevant. They were minor, but they were relevant. And so I bought into a guy who was like, hey, I think this is a seven bat with plus defense at second base, but there's no power. And now all of a sudden it was like, okay, maybe there's fringe average game power here. Maybe he hits a ton of doubles and it plays like more than that. Like, But if you take Redding thought. out of his career stats right now, like he seems much more ordinary if you, if you take out those 317 plate appearances. So, so then it why makes do we me keep wonder doing this, this to ourselves? <laughs> well, yeah, it makes me wonder if this suddenly falls into that, like, Dallas McPherson, Brandon Wood area, which I don't think he's that level of player, where a crazy season gets some really high prospect rating, and then for five straight years we're still talking about that one season as though that represents how good he is, and, like, maybe it's not? Like, I'm looking at the Zips projection, has him, has him projected right now as an 82 WRC plus guy. And like that, that wouldn't be the kind of guy that I'd be pushing to give a huge extension to. I don't what think are the X stats like. Like I think he's I'm better than that. If, like I would probably project him a little higher, maybe closer to like ninety five. Um, but if he's swinging through ninety one mile an hour fastballs like center cut, which is what just as I've been watching the Phillies here down the stretch, uh, as I'm keeping up with like the playoff contenders, like this is what I've seen from Kingery is this guy is just miss, missing hittable pitches 
that is not a uh, a thing that has to do with uh, his power output being caricatured by Redding, and it certainly isn't the player that everyone had seen every year of this guy's life up until now. You know what I mean? Like that's not so. That is what inclines me to say some aspect of this is mental. Um, but um, I suppose I don't know. I'm finding Kingery on. Yeah, like I'd feel a lot better if after the season they say he had like a severely strained thumb the entire season. I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, got it. But the point is that J.P. Crawford is up. Yeah, I guess we're supposed to be talking um, about September Collapse. We keep spending time talking about the guys. That whatever, it's fine. <laughs> uh, we're talking baseball. But, but yeah, so Philly's call-ups are Crawford, who's not playing, Dylan Cousins and Aaron Altair, who, you know, like uh, almost every team we've talked about so far, it's a lefty and righty outfield uh, bat off the bench and to start occasionally. Andrew Knapp, third catcher, again, almost every team is doing that. Uh, and then there's, you know, the depth arms, Yaxel Rios, who's like a mid-90s, uh, side armor, basically. But really what Philly has done is Justin Bohr and as Drew Ball Cabrera and Jose Bautista is starting for them. Uh, and I guess, like, my question is... Why can't they trade for Bartolo Colon? <laughs> like, just let the guy, the young guys play. Just yeah. let them play. I, I guess the inclination is when you've got a shot to make the playoffs, you want to go with veterans rather than the, the younger guys that aren't performing quite as well. But let's see, as of recording, they're at 19.7% chance of making the playoffs. So it's like, you know, reasonably unlikely at this point. So uh, then the justification for that is either we just think these guys are better right now, which I would argue can be just damaging for your young players. Either your relationship with them could be damaged or just their self-confidence, I suppose. And then if the argument is, well, these guys have experience, well, then give your young players some experience. Or get Scotty back on his jetpacks because I, I don't know what a, a low rent version of a jetpack would be as like uh, some something to describe him as currently. But I'll just say he's not on his jetpack. All right, Scott Kingery's X stats, by the way, which for those of you who do, don't know what X stats are, it's just this theoretical thing that uh, I find interesting. Uh, Andrew Perpetua, and I believe has, in his case, you can probably round up on them because they don't incorporate speed. Sure. And since since Kingery's got some speed, you can probably run it's it up for one. Based second. on the quality of an individual's contact, uh, exit velocities, hit trajectories, pulled, oppo, up the middle, all that sort of stuff, it approximates what the uh, it sort of spits out like a projected triple slash line. Um, and there's more to it than that, but this is when I come here to glance quickly. This is what I'm looking at. So S- Scott Kingery's uh, for 2018, based on his balls in play. Quality of contact says he's expected to hit 240, 280, 340. Okay, so it's not like there's some – right. So it's not like there's some hidden thing going on here uh, that has diluted this guy's stats. Like this is just what the quality of contact is, has been like. It has been bad. We don't really know what it is uh, that's causing it. could be mental. It could be because we just came on too heavy uh, because of the year he had at Reading. But we can verify that he is currently trash. Yeah, he's not playing well right now. But, like, I love him to death. His dad is a super nice dude who... Uh, oh, no, here we go. Here comes I, all his the dad bias. Is nice. No, like, you know, because when I was at ESPN is when Kingry was playing really well at U of A. And I was just like, hey, I think this guy's really good. And, you know, Kevin Newman was the first rounder, was, you know, the top 15 talent. Uh, I liked Kingry a lot. Uh, so it felt good when he was playing. Anymore throughout the minors, and his you know his dad said hi at one point. His dad's a nice dude. Kingery was a walk on at U of A, and now 
And his mom bakes nice cookies. Stuff. His uncle puts three thousand dollars in your bank account. Yeah, we got it. Okay. Um, so, so, so what was supposed to be a twelve-minute segment went for much longer than that. Um, Who could have predicted this would happen? I know. <laughs> we, we we never do this. Uh, all right. Uh, so next topic. I, I guess I'll kind of run the intro for this one. So the the article I wrote this week, you can find it on a uh, great website, Fangraphs.com. Uh, I used three of the players that I saw over the last couple weeks: uh, Matt Manning. Uh, Dylan Cease and Brendan McKay, Manning in high A, I guess now double A uh, with Detroit, uh, Cease in double A uh, with the White Sox, and then McKay in high A with the Rays. Um, and my point was that McKay and Cease both fit into the um, very prospect-friendly bucket of young guy with plus stuff that was hyped coming out of high school that still hasn't quite developed starter command, so there's some question of if it's a starter or reliever. And then McKay fits, I think, into a smaller and uh, less easily identified bucket of above-average stuff, above-average command. And my argument was we've seen tons of these plus stuff, um, fringy command guys. Most of them don't make it or turn into relievers or just blow out completely. The above-average stuff, above-average command guys, I think, are a little underrated in general. And then specifically this year, until he got hurt, Mike Soroka fell into that. Bryce Wilson fell into that. Uh, Shane Bieber, all of those guys, I think, took steps forward this year. And then the you know Manning Cease and a very long list of guys like them. You have you know Max Scherzer or Justin Verlander arguably could have been in this group and got out of it. But I think we are overrating them to make sure we don't miss that guy that makes it out of there and overrating like, you know, 80, 90 percent of them. And obviously you're just going to miss some of them if you move them all down. But my point was maybe the small group of, you know, five to ten pitchers that are above average stuff and command um, should be pushed up a bit because I I think of command as this separator thing that once you see it, it generally doesn't go away. So, Eric, what are your thoughts on that thesis that I push forward? I tend to agree. I wonder if part of the reason that so many of the higher volume of, uh, I guess I'll say prototypical pitching prospects, mid-90s curveball righties, basically, um, with varying degrees of command. Like part of the reason, I think there's definitely some selection bias to this. There's a higher volume of these guys uh, who, and so more of them are going to fail. Uh, I think also that you could argue that demographic has fallback options because just because that that two pitch com- combination is always going to be in demand, uh, and so I think a lot of these guys trickle into um, disappointing but still high profile roles. Like remember when Andrew Miller was a disappointment? Like remember that time period when For a everyone long was time. Of- yeah right so. Uh, I just think it's like it's like SNL sketches. Like you remember the really good ones from the early to mid '90s, and you don't really remember the stinkers. They just sort of drift away uh, from your. They get taken out of the reruns, right? Um, and so, like you don't remember that, and so you just remember the early '90s SNL being super good. And then you watch current SNL, and you're subject to it in real time, and it just doesn't live up to your. You know, you remember the Matt Foley sketches and whatever. And I just tend to think that. Um, when we miss on someone like Bieber or you know Kyle Hendricks comes up and does what he does or Kluber or whoever, and I'd argue that like some of these, yes, we should have as an industry uh, publicly recognized before it happened. But I also think that we just tend to remember these guys and not realize, oh, there are also these other 
15, 20 guys who just trickled away into nothing because if something doesn't develop with these guys with this level of stuff, then they're not anything. They're not what C.J. Edwards became. They're not what Dellen Betances uh, became. You know, like it's not when these guys flop, they still become something. And we can see it, and we're still kind of disappointed by it, even if it's valuable. And I think, like, if Brandon McKay, who, when, when I saw him last year at Louisville, was 88 to 92, if he's 88 92 again in the future, like, that might just happen to him. He's been more like two to five uh, touch a six with someone told me they think he's got future seven command. Like, that's excellent, and he's going to be very high on our prospect lists for a very long time. But if, like, this type of. Uh, prospect loses anything like there's just less margin for error for that guy and I just think that they kind of go away and we forget about them we, I, so, made a, I made a point of not saying the above average command guy apart from stuff because I still don't quite believe in the Colby Allard type of pitcher if you're, if you're throwing that hard when you're sort of the young gun where your velo is going to drop off from there I don't think that guy was a good bet to succeed that type of player 10 years ago, and it's way less good of a, a bet now. But I think when you can start, like, you know, Shane Bieber started at a good level, and then the VL actually got a little bit better, and it seems like the command is held, uh, I feel like that's more likely than taking, you know, a bunch of Matt Manning types and be like, oh, they're all going to turn into starters because he's, like, tall and athletic. It's like, no, nah, they don't all do that. Yeah, yeah that's, okay. that's what I'm saying. If you can, if you can account for sort of uh, walk-to-strikeout rate and age for the level... I think that gets you to where you could identify those, you know, 10 or 12 guys that I point out in the article and maybe pick out a few more that maybe we're underrating a little bit. Okay, yeah. Then, yeah, I think that's a good that's a good uh, exercise to undergo during the offseason is to cross-reference a couple of those things. I would also make say... Make sure we're not light on someone. Um, so I wrote an article, I don't know, three years ago about trying to apply the Black Swan Theory from Nassim Taleb's uh, article or book, The Black Swan Toward Pitchers. And some people thought I was a little too liberal with how I did it, but it was more the inspiration of the idea brought me to a thing that I think is generally correct. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Mention who you, just for the sake of honesty. Oh, yeah. It, it was Carson Fulmer. Yeah. Uh, and he basically fit into a group where the other four uh, guys before him that like fit his description were uh, Mike Leak. Tim Linscombe, Marcus Stroman, and Sonny Gray. And so And Chris Sale, you could have argued Chris Sale as well. I thought Well it was short guys. So Sale Sale and you oh, could have okay. argued Hayden Simpson, uh, but I sort of used the idea of uh, consensus top fifteen guys, which Simpson was not. So yeah, when you basically did short college righties that performed and were consensus top fifteen, uh, or, or however I defined it, but something like that. Those were the four guys, and then Carson Fulmer was the next one. So I was like, right. okay, the you could argue these things aren't related and Carson Fulmer's not going to be good, but it's really compelling that it's four out of four so far. Um, and almost nothing you would ever do in the draft could go four for four. You're always going to have a stinker in there. Now, it turned out Carson Fulmer's probably the stinker. <laughs> then it stinker. went four for five. <laughs> Sorry for publicly shaming you, but... No, no, no. This, I mean, we, we said earlier, this is going to be a podcast where we talk about all the things we're wrong about. Um, and, I also, uh, and I also said in that article that if you're looking for the next guy, the next one after that could be J.B. Bukowskis, which you could argue if he qualified or not. Sure. But he also hasn't worked out. It could just be one of those things where, you know, you pull the slot machine four times and nail it, and you're like, oh, this one's broken. It's putting out every time. And then you fail the next two times. You're like, oh, never mind. I just got really lucky. Bukowskis has been better lately for what it's worth. He'll be in Fall League. We'll get to see. Yeah, I think they both generally fit in that, like, you know, multi-inning guy that's probably not a starter, but brings something to the table. Um, Anyway. So so anyway, this guy's new book. Yeah, so I think it's from a couple years ago. Uh, 
it's called anti-fragile. And the, and the concept is um, we talk about things that are fragile as then like you, you know, bring disorder to them like, you know, a potato chip and they break. And things that are strong, you know, like a brick, like you drop it, it doesn't break. It's, you know, he used the word robust. We don't talk about things that get stronger when you do stuff, when you like stress them in some way. Um, and my, and he uses the example of like, you know, antibodies um, for a disease or uh, like how you get stronger if you lift weights, like you're basically stressing your muscles and then they get stronger. Uh, those are some, you know, examples in, uh, I, I guess, sort of everyday life to give you an idea of what he's talking about. And I, when I was talking about this command idea where you could use an example of like, like, you know, picture like, you know, Shane Bieber, uh, where it's, you know, it's a plus command and we'll say above average stuff. Um, I would argue or put forth that there's a chance that the concept of command could be anti-fragile where if your stuff backs up and you basically are bringing stress to a pitcher's profile, in some cases, uh, especially with the best pitchers, command almost makes you a better pitcher. Like there's examples of, uh, I remember, um, I believe it was Paul Wilson back in the Generation K for the Mets uh, with all those big prospects, and they all just kind of flamed out. He was one that had shoulder surgery and basically said, I'd always throw 95 and never had to know how to pitch. And then my velo disappeared, and I learned how to pitch, and then my velo kind of came back a little bit. And there's examples of that um, throughout you know, baseball where a guy never had to learn how to pitch. All of a sudden, either he gets to a higher level or his stuff backs up. He has to learn how to pitch, and sometimes the stuff gets better. Uh, so I tend to think that command is like that, um, not intangible, because obviously we, we <laughs> directly measure it, um, but I think it's that thing that is sometimes overlooked that oftentimes can be like the key to seeing why a guy works out. And I'm not going to argue that this, you know, not writing an article about it, because I don't think it like broadly applies to everyone. And now you can, you know, win your fantasy league with, you know, one crazy trick or whatever. But I think it's interesting that there's an- yet another thing in pitching that seems to line up uh, in some ways with some stuff that this guy writes about when I know he's not thinking about baseball. Yeah, I that is interesting. You're right. I, I agree with that. Jared Weaver is another example of that. Dan Heron, guys yeah, who have figured Burley, out. All, all these guys, Jamie Moyer, yeah. guys that shouldn't exist, I think were better pitchers when they threw 84 because they were forced to get better. And I guess the issue would be not every guy with plus command can then get 80 command when they're throwing 84, so it only applies to some guys. So I don't know what the actual utility of it is, but I I think it does sort of map to that in some ways. There's probably a way you could figure it out, right? Like you could, just to make sure that, again, there's not like a selection bias that we're just talking about. Like we know who succeeds because they do it, and we it's harder to know who doesn't because they just sort of fade away. Well, if you read uh, Eno Saris of the Athletic, uh, he's been trying to just measure current command using you know pretty simple measures or combining a bunch of simple things or doing some complicated things, and can't seem to make a lot of progress because it seems to be impossible to like you know perfectly nail it. If you right. if you're going to say like you're a scout that you can watch a guy pitch a game and be like, oh, it's sixty command, that's the correct answer. And then your goal is to figure out how to use all the stats from that game to come up with 60. I don't think anybody can reliably come up with that. Mm. I mean, do you think so? No, I mean, the way we did it when I was at Baseball Info Solutions was we had individuals mapping uh, catcher glove setup locations and then pitch locations. And then stuff was being done behind closed doors to try to uh, like weigh those against one another. But... Again, one of these issues in in baseball is that there are some things that are done for communicative reasons and some of them are done for technical reasons. And this is a lot of times was just one of those things that was done for uh, communicative reasons. So like if if a catcher, for example, wanted a curveball in the dirt where he calls for it, he's really going to be 
you know, patting the ground a couple times, and then he's going to set up a lot of times where uh, he wants the pitcher to aim, and then the ball is going to tumble down into the d- dirt beneath that. And so you never like you had to uh, you had to trust that your video interns were going to realize that and mark that the catcher's glove was like down in the dirt, but that wasn't that didn't always make sense. You know what I mean? Like, so there are times when the catcher is holding his glove somewhere that where he. Uh, he doesn't want the pitcher to throw the ball there. And so that stuff still sort of dirties the data and your ability to try to measure that sort of thing. Well, yeah, and um, he wrote about that in the Hardball Times using the, um, what was it, catcher FX? I forgot what those things were called where they measured where the glove was and then where they caught the pitch. And okay. he was like, you know, generally guys with good command, as we understand it, show up near the tops of those lists. But there were a couple, like even good pitchers that were just wildly off. And he was like, yeah, there's, because there's a bunch of times where you're setting up and you're not trying to throw it there. And the catcher's not going to go after the game and watch every pitch and say, oh, no, it's actually – I would. and then for him to throw it eight inches to the right of this, and then he threw it right there, and so it was perfect. Like there's just too many, There's too much noise in that that unless mm-hmm. the catcher and the pitcher tell you exactly what they wanted to do. And I would bet they don't even agree on some pitches, and so then how would you measure? You just split the difference? It just seems – you know, that you would think um, would do it, but in reality, I don't think it would. I mean I remember uh, one of the teams I was with a long time ago – um, we were talking about how to how would be the ideal way to measure uh, an outfielder's defensive ability, and one guy um, who is now someone that is very high up with the team suggested, "Oh, we should have every center fielder uh, turn around with his back to the hitter, and then right as we shoot a ball out of a machine, he has to turn around and you know like read it and run to it." And I was like, "I see where you're going with that, but that has nothing to do with baseball." <laughs> like, no one's ever turning their back, and no balls are getting hit out of a machine. So right. how does that really measure what we're trying to measure, even though that that'll measure something? trying to distill a specific skill. Yeah, like, and it's almost like doing like the NFL Combine for baseball players. Like, yeah, the guy that can muscle up and hit the ball the furthest may have the most power, but that doesn't really mean anything for like who's sure. going to get drafted where. It's just one thing but, that they can tell you. It just gives you a bunch of stuff that over time you get to correlate to other things. Like football outsiders – is basically the fan graphs of football and uses combine data to do different things with like draft projections uh, in a lot of different ways that I think is interesting. Like they're saxier. Like they just found over time that the three cone drill had strong correlations with pass rushing success. Like guys who had a quick three cone drill and met other physical baselines were some of the better pass rushers. And then they identified teams that were clearly targeting these guys. Like the reason the Eagles took Chris Gokong out of uh, like Cal Poly in the third round when no one knew who the hell he was, was because he like had an incredible combine in the specific areas that uh, projected well for pass rushers. I think that's more pervasive in football now. And there's just not, teams are clearly doing that in baseball. Um, But because there's not – what teams are doing with TrackMan data, which is where most of that comes from, like just varies team to team. And smart teams, I think you would agree, have drawn different conclusions using the same data. Yeah, and I think that's – I mean that's ultimately where we're generally going with the way that we do stuff, which is you can do a 100% data-based thing or TrackMan-based thing or 100% scouting-based. You're going to miss all kinds of stuff if you do one or the other. If you combine them together, you're going to do better. In the same way as if you're trying to measure, like, command, like, I'm going to want some scouting grades, I'm going to want some, you know, strikeout-to-walk ratios, 
I'm going to want a bunch of TrackMan stuff about, you know, well, in a 1-0 count and he's throwing a fastball, does it go over the plate? Like, you know, that, that's one way to – that's one metric that will tell you if he's doing well. Yeah, and we're – and, you know, not to let the cat out of the bag. I guess we won't hear. But we have a bunch of stuff we're working on behind the scenes that is basically trying to combine scouting data with more objective data to give us a, a seemingly better look at things. And some of the things that we talk about that will not end up on this podcast are when we hear crazy behind-the-scenes stuff with teams where they're going way too far in one direction or the other, and we just kind of laugh where we're like, yeah, we'd like to trust the teams and think they know what they're doing and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's a lot of expert people doing expert things. But whenever anyone thinks that, oh, a decision should be made more toward one end of the spectrum or the other, like there's, there's a reason that the most successful teams mix the two together. Fine. <laughs> I guess. Well, that's a good transition into the amateur stuff, I guess, and so we both we started talking about it. Anytime anyone says, well, that's a great transition into, it automatically means it's an amateur it's a transition. transition. Yeah, yeah. We start talking about it. All right, so our third topic is just, a, I guess, a quick overview of the 2019 uh, MLB draft. I guess I'll run through real quick uh, some of the top guys. We're about to run through and do a, a refresh of our rankings, but the stuff you can find on the board. I think is pretty accurate as far as uh, what we think in general. Um, the very tippy top of the board here, uh, we got Adley Rutschman, a catcher at Oregon State, who the question everyone immediately asks is, is he as good as Joey Bart, the catcher that went second overall last year? Yes, he's as good. He might be better. I think we have him rated a little ahead of him right now. He's definitely ahead of him at the same stage and has higher upside, is sort of more athletic, all that kind of thing. Um, yep. And then in general, behind these guys, we have no pitchers in the top 15 uh, or I guess top 14. Um, I think that will probably continue to be true in the update, but we'll see. And well, has anybody – did anybody pop on the Cape? Because like – Not, talk not about at some... that level. There's been a lot of guys that have, I think have moved into like the late first comp, you know, early second kind of level. But it doesn't sound like there's a top 15 guy. Some of the high school arms we could talk about uh, have stuff that's pretty comparable to some of the guys who went in the middle of the first round last year but you kind of have to pick your poison with them like you could have lined up Cole Wynn and Grayson Rodriguez uh and you know all the prep pitchers who went early last year in a bunch of different ways and been right or wrong about it like I don't think Ryan Weathers should have gone as high as he did compared to all the other uh high school pitchers but he went seventh so who knows where some of these guys are going to go but uh, we tend to round down on the high school righties especially and it sounds like a lot of teams are starting to do so as well yeah, and that was actually part of the thing we, I guess we could have run into in the last topic, but I think we went long enough, which is talking about how we ranked pitchers on the top 100 minor leaguers in general, that we know that they have historically been rated too high and too many of them have been on the list, and we didn't necessarily know how to correct that completely, but if you just move them all down a little bit, that's probably going to get you closer, and that was part of the reason I brought up the sort of um, Brennan McKay, Bryce Wilson... Um, Shane Bieber group saying, I think those are the guys that you leave about where they are and then move down some of the Manning Cease guys. And generally when you're talking about high school pitchers, it's way more Manning and Cease than it is Bieber. Cause also it's really hard to establish that you're an above average command guy when you're 17 years old. So even if a guy turns into that, you don't really know he's that at this right. stage. Uh, yeah, I think uh, in general, like now that we're done with stuff for the summer that my general feelings about the class are that it's, it's super hitter heavy and not in a way that I, that bums me out. Like I, I think there's a lot of depth. I think there's a lot of high school power, especially. Um, College hitters are probably the best they've been in a while. Yeah. So I think it's a good draft, but it's definitely uh, light on pitching, especially college pitching right now. I would say if we're going to go into college pitching, there's a bunch of guys I could bring up and say 
this guy's you know got some upside. Like Tyler Dyson at the at this point last yeah. year looked like he was going to go one one, and now it sounds like he's in the high eighties, low nineties, and has the yips. So we'll see where that goes. Uh, the guy that I think is will be most interesting, uh, at least is at this point, is Graham Stenson at Duke, who is a 6'5", 250 lefty. That it sounds like they might try to start him this spring, but as a reliever uh, the summer and late in the spring for Duke, he was uh, 94 to 97 with a slider. At times it was a 70, and I know has, I believe has had spin rates over 3,000, has definitely been in the high 2,000s. Um, yeah, which for a pitch that velocity is like... Yeah, a mid eighty slider with that sort of spin is like nuts. And he's not—he's you know a little on the less athletic side, a little stiff, a little bit of cross body. Like it's not quite as electric as say like a K Rod or a Brad Lidge that was like you know a comparable stuff from the right side guy where you're you know super confident that he's just going to do this forever. Um, but there's also a chance he can dial it down a little bit and be a starter because that's I mean that's what he was in high school. He's turned into a different guy now. Um, but he's going to be interesting to watch to see what he turns into. And he could follow the path of uh, Dylan Tate, obviously not the same sort of pitcher, but as a guy that had stood out as a high 90s reliever that is able to translate it uh, as a starter and then end up at the top of the draft. I mean, that would happen. That is That would be what would happen if he was able to do that. Um, but otherwise, the rest of the pitching in the class, I think, is you know prototypical high school pitching with you know big stuff and not a whole lot of command and usually some issues with the either the body or the delivery, and then a bunch of college pitchers that'll show you first round stuff and then other times don't or hurt or have command issues or whatever. It's not an inspiring group right now, but you know there's enough there's enough raw stuff there that, that I'm sure will be some guys that emerge. Right, Matthew Thompson, the righty from Cypress, Texas, who's currently at the top of our high school uh, like. He's the top high school pitcher on the board right now. Uh, 92-95 in Chicago midsummer for me. Threw a little bit harder than that. Uh, later in the summer in San Diego. Has like the best delivery in the class. It's super loose and fluid and clean if you like all that stuff. I do. Uh, there's feel for the breaking ball and um, glove side command. Uh, Jack Leiter, Al's sons Vanderbilt commit so um possibly some signability stuff there Al and Tim Corbin had a nice long conversation at area codes so not sure what's up with that always be recording uh, 9093 most most of the summer for me up to 5 has probably the best high school curveball right now it's like a pre- um, it's a present 60 yeah yeah it's it's really good athletic uh struggle with fastball command at times Delivery has a lot of crossfire action to it. Might be a guy whose fastball command you can clean up just by altering the stride direction a little bit. Um, Brennan Malone, another like six four two oh five mid nineties power breaking ball command has come and gone. Like it's a lot of it's a lot of that um, throughout the class, and there's just not as many guys who do that this year as there were last year when it seemed like there were twelve guys who did that. Yeah, and then also you have Daniel Spino, I think, also fits in that group who's been... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess depending on the gun, up to 100, I think we both had him up to 99 multiple times. That yep. First time I saw him, breaking ball wasn't there, but you could tell he knew how to spin it, and then by the end of the summer, he's showing you 60s uh, you know, multiple times an outing. And it's, um, it's, a, it's a pretty decent frame. It's a longer arm action. The command's not great. The delivery's just okay. It you know fits into that, that group of the super-duper hard-throwing high school pitcher where... If he threw 92, he wouldn't go in the first round, but he throws 98, so he probably will. And uh, he is a high school righty in Georgia, but he's from Panama. And the buzz, he pitched at this thing I was at last weekend here in Arizona, and there was just buzz in the scouting section that, uh, hey, what if this kid returned to Panama? 
and became I became an international free agent. And I was told that he will pitch for Panama in an event against the Team USA, which includes almost all of the other high school guys that you would talk about in this class, uh, which includes C.J. Abrams, Bobby Witt, Reese Hines, all the best high school hitters in the class. I guess we'll be and it's, presumably against him. I don't know how the matchups will go, but he'll be in the same event. It's interesting to think about you know, which arena he would do better in financially, especially if we fold in the notion that high school righties are just in general falling down boards across baseball, like as a thing. Uh, to be fair, also in July too, uh, most teams say, oh, my top signing will not be a pitcher. I'm not going over a million on a pitcher. And there's only been a handful of teams that seem okay with doing that. Um, I mean, there were rumors that Sandy Gaston, a 16-year-old Cuban, was going to get, what, $2 million and change from the Marlins, and then that just sort of fell apart. And I want to say low seven figures for for one player was the only one this year? I mean, it's on. I think we have most of them. I, I just wonder, like... How much? Uh, what did yes, Libby I think get? Starlin Castillo. Yeah, I think he was the only guy that got a million dollars as a pitcher this year. Like, if you look at what some of the high school righties got in this year's draft, even if Espino's timing is awkward, like his entry into the international market is not—he's not like let's say he's not eligible next July because not all the paperwork has been done yet. It, you could argue that him being uh, a late consolation prize of some kind might actually be beneficial like what if he hits the market the way julio pablo martinez hit the market late uh you know the following winter when there are five or six teams that have money uh and you're the only big name left in the market like now there's a bidding war for you you might get more than if you go in the late first round like i think it's kind of an interesting question that he should be asking himself yeah and i guess i guess it's unclear if he actually has the option or if, if he would you know, pull a Lucius Fox and immediately get thrown into into the international class if he were to do that. Um, but yeah, he obviously he has this to think about, and basically no other player in this high school class has that to think about, um, which makes it interesting. All right, here's another question I have for you. Uh-huh. What the hell do you do with Spencer Jones? <laughs> uh, I don't know. What do you do? With <laughs> so uh, Spencer Jones is a six foot seven. Left-handed pitcher and first baseman from Southern California. He goes to La Costa Canyon High School, which is Mickey Moniak's high school near yeah. San Diego. Loose and easy two-way guy. Uh, yeah, so it's 6'7", 205, plus power. He's a plus runner underway. He only really sits like upper 80s, low 90s, but it's a plus breaking ball right now. Uh, there's like field to hit there. He's a good athlete. Like, In my opinion, this is a guy who I, you could consider developing as a two-way player. I think he's <laughs> so talented. on him. <laughs> yeah, hell yes. I guarantee you this. <laughs> we can report now. The Rays will have three cross-checkers in his first game in the fall. <laughs> hell yeah. Um, absolutely. He's he's super interesting. Like I think that there's argument to like him either way or both ways. He's I don't typically like prep first-base only guys don't typically really move the needle for me. This guy does. I think he's really interesting. I, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how teams sift through this skill set in the next six months or whatever. All right, well, we uh, have gone entirely over time. I'm going to have to do some yeah, heavy editing here and not just with the reggaeton horns. So for the first episode of the Untitled Fangraphs podcast about whatever it is that we've just been talking about, uh, I'm Kyle McDaniel. That's Eric Longenhagen. Thanks for joining us. Bye.
Oh, incredible. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. What about this part? Will this be left in? Yeah, this part will get t- probably get taken out also. <laughs>